Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Stuart Fjertz, President and Director of Research at Cheney Capital. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you, Alex. So I thought today one of the best places to start, you know, given your interest in markets, is to sort of help us unpack the central bank um, influence that's leading to some dislocations and distortions in markets. Maybe if you could sort of kick us off in in what you're seeing there. Yeah, th- thank you, Alex. Um, I think that um, uh, what, what we see is, is clearly a uh, tremendous impact on uh, liquidity in the market that's driving down interest rates uh, to new lows. And uh, in particular, we're, we're seeing uh, equity markets uh, recover most of their uh, uh, sell-off, um, but within within that uh, uh, those two bookends, if you will, uh, there are segments of the market that have not uh, recovered back to their uh, March um, back to their pre-March highs, uh, and that's where we find uh, quite a bit of, of interest. Uh, with being a little bit more specific, Alex, um, you can see that um, generally speaking, private equity sponsored companies are excluded from having access to these uh, lending facilities. That makes uh, it interesting to invest in some of those markets. Uh, and then you also have, um, uh, in Europe, we have a lack of a, a TALF-type program to support uh, the asset-backed markets. And so we see uh, uh, some of the real estate-backed uh, bonds really lagging that recovery and, and still providing uh, quite a bit of, of interest. Um, and then I would I would say that uh, uh, even within the equity markets, one has to uh, um, look a little bit at the composition of the rally. Uh, in the U.S., there's a particularly strong uh, leadership from the uh, tech uh, companies that uh, are perceived to be winners in this kind of environment. Uh, and here in Europe, we have um, uh, tech makes up about 10% uh, of the, the, the market cap of the U.S. Uh, and as a consequence, you see European uh, equity markets are still down 26% uh, year to date. Mm-hmm. Look, it's, it, you've really raised uh, an interesting point, which is sort of the, the divergence in, in, in markets, right, in, in terms of particularly in the equity markets. And it feels like there seems to be a bit of a uh, a different sort of divergence between Wall Street as a whole and Main Street. You know, are you seeing that also in Europe? And what does that mean? Well, we we are seeing uh, perhaps a little bit less of that than in uh, in the U.S. and in, in that we don't have um, uh, as many perceived uh, winners or the, or the the. Uh, uh, the winners have not yet been recognized in the same way um, on, on the equity side. Uh, I think there's there's perhaps a little bit more realism here in in, in Europe that this uh, crisis response, while absolutely necessary, uh, the lessons from 0809 were learned uh, to immediately uh, open up the floodgates of, of uh, both monetary and fiscal expansion. Uh, but there is a re- recognition that companies will come out of this crisis with uh, substantially more debt on their balance sheet 
and with a likelihood of much lower earnings or a lengthy recovery back to peak earnings. And so there's there is a question as to which companies will will uh, will survive in this environment. Um, uh, we we know with somewhat surprise that cruise ship bookings in the U.S. are are ahead of where they were uh, 12 months ago. Um, it, it seems to us that uh, uh, either enforced changes in consumer behavior with uh, social distancing and so forth, or uh, consumer reluctance to uh, to uh, engage in the same activities as before, is going to lead to some changes that uh, are not at all uh, are not all beneficial to, to companies. It's funny, you know, when when you think about the the support that's come from financial, you know, the the monetary policy and fiscal policy, but is it really enough to sort of really address some of the broader Main Street issues? You know, obviously you can talk about behaviors of people, and there is some, I guess, you could say it's positive behavior around cruise ships, but I guess then if you think more locally to Australia, there's still a lot of hesitation. So, you know. Firstly, I guess there's two, there's two parts to this question. One is, you know, have have the central banks and and uh, the governments done enough to try and help restore the economy? Um, and then, what does that mean for sort of broader investment markets too? Well, I, I think you're right to uh, to pose that question, Alex. Um, in the, in the first phase of the response, it, it was uh, accepted and that that. Uh, we need this funding to address issues of liquidity. And as the crisis or the lockdown continues, as we see uh, uh, the uh, economic uh, life being strangled out, um, it really, it really, the question really moves to one of, of solvency. And here uh, there is a, uh, I think, a lack of recognition that, uh, of that shift from liquidity to, uh, to solvency. You're beginning to see governments talk about uh, the need to either inject equity rather than debt or indeed uh, to convert loans into equity. Uh, the normal channels of doing that, uh, Chapter um, chapter uh, 11 or voluntary uh, uh, schemes of arrangement here in Europe, are that, that uh, system is going to get clogged up. And, and uh, uh, I worry that, that uh, um, it is not going to be a smooth, uh, smooth transition. What it means for the markets is that that those investors that can be selective or and and uh, invest in companies that won't come out of this over leveraged, uh, you you can uh, uh, generate some pretty attractive yields, or alternatively, you can go the other side and invest with those managers that are that are able to uh, navigate through a restructuring process, whether it's uh, a Chapter 11 in, in the U.S. or uh, or through what would generally be a voluntary scheme of arrangement uh, here in Europe. Is this, uh, you know, likely that we, we'll end up with, with a whole range of zombie companies that take quite a while for this process to, to work its way through? You sort of alluded to maybe the difficulties um, in going through this reorganisation, you know, is is that is that likely to be the case in terms of investing in this sector? That you know, it, there's there's a real challenge to identify companies that can survive, um, or, or is it clear cut, more clear cut than that? No, I, th- I think it is. Uh, um, it, it takes some some skill and selectivity to 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 back the winners. Um, I think your your question about the zombie companies uh, is is a good one. Um, uh, the 
uh, European uh, regulator had um, instituted um, a, uh, a shift to IFRS 9, which was designed to uh, force banks to recognize the economic uh, situation of a company or of a loan uh, rather than just waiting until the company defaulted. And, and that the old regime was perfectly set up for um, a uh, an approach to extend and pretend and and uh, keep a company um, uh, from defaulting just as long as they paid their interest. Uh, today, with the impact of the lockdown, uh, I think that that uh, the stage is set for a, a shakeout. That the zombie com zombie companies are going to hit the wall. Uh, because they, they need liquidity uh, to come out of this uh, uh, this um, uh, shutdown. Uh, they have uh, received some some financing, perhaps to pay wages in the interim, but but they need liquidity to get going again. And that liquidity is not going to be forthcoming uh, from uh, from uh, banks or from the market uh, with without addressing their their balance sheets. So actually, I think this is going to shake it out. I think uh, governments and, and central banks are going to have to manage the pace of that shakeout. But I think it's it's going to happen over the next couple of years. You won't have the same kind of ten-year uh, lag that we uh, saw in in uh, particularly in Europe uh, since the GFC. Yeah, that was that was exactly the sort of the question I was trying to get at, which is which is sort of the lag that's there. You know, are, are we sort of going to be papering over some of these really big fundamental problems that uh, have led to some zombie companies? And uh, you know, hopefully we get back to sort of this dynamic, which is a, a clearing out of, of some of these businesses that have been perpetually losing money. Um, and I guess the other question is, you know, for how for how much longer can central banks continue to keep propping up? Um, certain parts of the markets, obviously their programs are pretty wide, but they they do have limits as to how far they go. Um, and not every sector can be can be benefited. Maybe if you could sort of give us a little bit of a uh, an overview of sort of where you're seeing more the dislocations where central banks can can play and help to support you know particular sectors versus where they can't. Yeah, I, th I think there's there's a uh, a a point to be made that in cases central banks choose not to, but they could. And um, I say that because uh, post the GFC, the European central banks, uh, whether it's ECB or the Bank of England, um, chose not to support the asset-backed markets. Uh, in fact, they took the biggest book they could find and they really smashed that, that part of the market. And this stands in real contrast to the U.S., uh, where you saw in the GFC uh, the uh, very successful uh, 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 TALF program, um, and now you see TALF two, uh, which is which is being uh, uh, rolled out in the U.S. as we speak. Uh, there's a few uh, tweaks to it, um, and and you don't see a, a parallel to that uh, in in Europe. So uh, more could more could happen uh, for us as investors. That's uh, in some ways fortuitous because uh, uh, it gives us a chance to invest in securities that haven't been driven back up again by by that liquidity uh, the, the other point I, I i think i made um earlier but it's worth expanding is that uh central banks and governments choose have chosen not to support uh companies owned by uh private equity uh firms and that's a partly a political decision um partly it it, it uh um it's based on the belief that private equity 
company managers have the have great uh, uh, amounts of uh, of untapped resources that they could bring to bear, and they ignore the fact that oftentimes these companies uh, are financed out of a specific fund that may no longer have any excess uh, uh, dry powder to to support those those businesses. So we think there's particularly a particular opportunity to uh, provide. Uh, leverage to companies that are private equity owned uh, that need more liquidity. Um, and here we can take advantage of the uh, poor covenants that uh, that that were uh, embedded in both bonds and loans uh, uh, pre this crisis. Uh, that opens up the opportunity to provide super senior rescue financing. Effectively, we're priming the existing uh, lenders, whether they're uh, uh, banks, uh, holders of loans or, or bondholders, um, and uh, ending up in a senior secured position with, uh, with quite an attractive uh, uh, convex position where you make a, a very good return, maybe even a better return if things return uh, to normal uh, faster than you've, uh, than you've assumed. And then on, on the other side of the spectrum, if uh, if things do get worse, if there's a second wave of, uh, of, the, of the virus that requires a lockdown, if the economic recovery is more extended uh, than, than you've assumed, then you're in a good position to convert your debt position into a controlling equity position. And as long as you enter into the business at, at the at a at a solid at a low enough targeted uh, uh, multiple of EBITDA, then you can actually make more money in that kind of a downside scenario. So you end up with a truly uh, convex exposure. Mm-hmm. And, and is there particular types of businesses that that you're looking at in in that private equity space, or is that across all sectors? I think that that the. Uh, easy money, if you will, has been made in, in if I may put it, in the more obvious sectors. So, uh, food, uh, food retailing, and and uh, cable, for example, uh, uh, a business that that has been thriving under these uh, circumstances, uh, particularly the food delivery uh, services. Uh, supermarkets have remained uh, have remained open. Uh, with it, and and you've seen uh, loans and bonds recover back to their pre uh, pre uh, crisis uh, uh, levels, or, or pretty close to it. But when you start to look at more economically sensitive uh, sectors, it's um, it, you can find uh, uh, interesting opportunities both in the uh, traditional manufacturing sector, uh, consumer products uh, uh, areas. But also in the more exposed sectors like uh, transportation, uh, whether it's uh, uh, airlines or indeed cruise ships that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so one, one has to be uh, selective. One has to look and see which companies have uh, the best, uh, uh, are best positioned, uh, the, the ones that have uh, the airlines that have unencumbered uh, aircraft are much more interesting than those that are operating under a leasing model and have no no further collateral to offer. Uh, so we, we've seen uh, opportunities across the board. Uh, one of our favorite um, uh, exposures is a UK um, uh, owner and operator of leisure centers, uh, very well positioned for a environment of uh, lower economic uh, growth uh, or indeed a recession um, and a company that is uh, likely to benefit from ongoing travel restrictions and a trend towards uh, staycations. 
this is a business that operated well uh, during the GFC, was operating at about 98% capacity uh, pre the uh, uh, spread of the uh, uh, pandemic. Um, the equity sponsor has got 750 million pounds uh, sitting beneath us as one of the largest real estate owners in the world. And you can buy that position with a uh, with a view of, of generating returns in the uh, uh, around eight uh, percent on your on your on the downside and and 12 15 percent on the upside and we think that represents a uh, you know very attractive uh, risk reward opportunity mm-hmm. this is this is a great place to sort of transition to real estate more broadly right it, it's one of those areas that has has really copped a lot of heat particularly uh, the commercial commercial real estate um, in Australia, uh, it's under pressure like it is around the world. And then even on um, some of the, the student housing and, and even sort of the the other build-to-rent style properties, um, particularly in Australia, there's now more and more pressure from governments to cut to cut rents. You know, what, what are you seeing in, in that sort of spectrum of real estate? Well, it's, it's a, as you say, it's a really interesting space because you've got um, – Governments encouraging uh, tenants to uh, uh, to not pay their rent, or landlords to to accept uh, rent waivers, and, and that has a real knock-on impact as to the financing that that the landlord is as uh, has used. Um, and we think there are a couple of shoes to, still to drop on that side, um, both in the U.S. Uh, and in uh, and in uh, Europe. Um, in the March-April uh, rent cycle, you you had um, uh, so rent rent receipts of around I don't know somewhere in the 85 percent level, and between those rent uh, receipts and uh, rent reserves, uh, you had uh, most most real estate loans were kept current. Uh, we're a bit more pessimistic about the June July rent cycle, uh, where you will see the full impact of uh, what's generally going to be a full uh, three months of lockdown. Uh, so we think there's quite a number of defaults that are going to rumble through the CMBS market and and um, uh, lead to downgrades and, 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 and probably some more uh, selling pressure from investors that can't hold uh, the paper any longer. Um, we think that gives you opportunity. We think there's opportunities today to position yourself to profit from that. If you're investing in, say, the senior debt of a hotel group and you look through LTV, so multiply your discounted price to to par times the LTV, and uh, you end up with a look through LTV at which you, you'd be happy to own that asset. And if you choose assets with good, solid equity sponsors, deep-pocketed equity sponsors that are pretty unlikely to want to lose those those assets uh, at at that kind of price, uh, then you can um, then you can be uh, be comfortable that you're going to earn that yield, and and potentially quite a bit more if that uh, debt is uh, is refinanced uh, more quickly, or if the bonds um, end up or loans end up uh, trading up. So one can't throw out every sector. Uh, we're we're particularly concerned, however, with the uh, retail sector. Where we estimate, and and we may be a bit more conservative than than some, but we estimate that retailers need to cut their rent bill by some fifty percent. Now, the knock-on impact of that, of of asking for a rent cut in exchange for a participation in um, in uh, in operating profits or a revenue share, really changes the very nature of what retail property is and makes it a a much harder asset to to finance going forward. 
the asset then becomes neither a traditional real estate asset with a fixed rent and perhaps escalators, uh, and it and it becomes not exposed. It, it it doesn't transform into full exposure to the retailer itself. Uh, it becomes this hybrid of part fixed rate, part uh, floating rate that, uh, that doesn't have a natural home, um, and and we think that's going to be difficult for the market to digest. Well, is that likely to change the types of shopping centers that we'll see in the future? Then. Well, I think the assets are are already sitting there, and it's going to be in the interest of of lenders uh, who will to end up with control of these assets in general uh, to to have them be used. So I don't think it it means that those centers are going to change overnight. Uh, it may mean that um, uh, that the landlords spend more time uh, underwriting and choosing their tenants. Uh, they have to uh, make bets more on the. Uh, on the prospects of those retailers, uh, longer-term prospects of those retailers uh, uh, with it. So I, I think you may see the emergence of, of maybe better capitalized uh, retailers being the tenants of choice uh, on that side. I think um, our perspective is that shopping centers will probably do better than than the high street, uh, but but uh, one needs to um, to be quite sober in assessing the, assessing their outlook. Mm-hmm. But maybe if we switch to, to sort of the commercial real estate space as well, um, you know, how do you think about sort of the return to utilization of 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 that part of the market? Um, you know, with a potential for for significant change in in social behaviour and their preference to to work in these sorts of environments, you know, is there likely to be a, a, still a lot more significant pressure in that area too? Well, that, that is the big question as to. Uh, uh, what the occupancy will be going forward. I think in, in Europe, we're in a, in a favorable uh, position where there wasn't uh, an oversupply going into this crisis. And we've seen a number of large projects uh, either uh, delayed or, or, or mothballed. Uh, uh, for example, the Leadenhall project in London was going to be a million square feet that's been, uh, been uh, put on ice for the, for the time being. And that means that any uh, space that there's today is going to isn't going to face a a glut of supply going forward uh with that uh i think that that uh, one of the big challenges that the towers uh, have today in in advance of a of a vaccine or at least a, a a reliable treatment um is is the need to end up with social spacing and elevators that that already were frustrating uh pre-crisis if you can imagine an ele- elevator with only one, two, or three people in it compared to the 10 or 12 that are crammed in there uh, today. So there's some challenges uh, for the higher rise uh, uh, buildings they have to get over. Um, I think that that uh, uh, demand growth will definitely be uh, slower than, than expected. Uh, the flip side of this is that uh, um, a number of users had switched to hot desking and it's not clear that uh, individuals will want to go back to hot desking because you won't know who was sitting there, you wanna who's using the phone, has that desk been disinfected since you were there last and so forth. So we'll have to see a little bit how demand uh, shakes out uh, go, going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the, I guess the other space which has been quite hot in an Australian market is student housing um, and sort of how that plays out. Um, have you got any views in terms of uh, that, maybe that part of the market? 
Yeah, I think that that in Europe, um, student housing, uh, when I say Europe, uh, let's say Europe x the UK, student housing was just beginning to uh, come into into existence as as a uh, as a segment of the market. Uh, if you look at um, a city like uh, Bologna in, in Italy, a number of, uh, of top universities there, and if I recall the numbers, there was something like student housing provision for for only on the order of one percent of the student population in the entire city. So I think there's room uh, for. Uh, any of the projects that are currently uh, underway to be uh, to be uh, utilized. I don't think the need for uh, low cost uh, housing has has uh, or affordable housing has gone away in any of these cities. So I think there's still going to be dem- demand for student housing as as the need for for affordable housing uh, competes with those students. Mm-hmm. Uh, with it, uh, we have a challenge here in the UK, and maybe one of the reasons why we're still. Uh, uh, taking our time to impose a a uh, quarantine kind of processes that is the UK universities are heavily reliant on foreign students for their fundamental funding model, and and that remains one of the biggest challenges. Uh, I think I think today uh, uh, one wants to certainly stay with the uh, stronger operators uh, with the. Uh, more attractive stock, uh, potentially even looking at, at stock that could be converted to uh, co-living or um, micro-living uh, uh, type environment if necessary. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think we probably need to talk to is in, in the real estate space, particularly um, is that historically these rents have had inflation you know, built into them or some sort of a price you know, increase. Are, are these assets going to be facing more, stra- you know, more of a struggle if we start to move into you know, a deflationary environment or maybe best case, some sort of a stagflationary environment, you know, how do you think about um, these types of assets and, and credit in that environment? Yeah, I think, uh, Alex, that's a good question. Um, the, the trend we think will be towards shorter leases uh, and that the, uh, uh, whether they're retailers or companies are going to want to be uh, locked in for a shorter period of time, uh, that uh, the landlords will uh, bear more of the risk of, of rents going down um, as opposed to being able to count on uh, 30-year leases uh, upward, upward only. Uh, and that will make it make uh, real estate harder for um institutions to own that as a as a kind of an upward only or a convex asset in of itself mm-hmm. i think that that um there is there is a real risk of of uh, stagflation um uh going forward uh that that we need to think about and 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 i think to the extent that you can gain gain exposure to Explicitly inflation-linked leases; those will be a much better bet than than um, uh, going with um, open market rent review leases. Um, and and I think um, the, the risk for stagflation is particularly high here in the UK, but but across the world, I mean, the 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 assumption is that we're we're faced with an environment of deflation, with uh, uh, job losses, with um, uh, a drop in in consumer demand, with with uh, 
plenty of uh, um, of uh, excess capacity on the production side. But one can't deny that there's been a historically aggressive uh, combination of monetary and fiscal expansion. You've got a a Fed uh, balance sheet that that is uh, heading towards uh, ten trillion dollars. That's uh, uh, nearly five times where it was at the end of the GFC, um, and you have a a, a tremendous uh, uh, shock of uh, negative productivity growth of um, uh, broken supply chains of mandatory or uh, socially required uh, uh, distancing of individuals um, and. And um, and a real loss of, of labor mobility. Of course, here in the UK, we're going to feel that the most as we're currently negotiating, uh, or maybe not so negotiating, but we should be negotiating uh, Brexit, um, and that's going to lead to to uh, uh, a real increase in in um, in costs that may not be offset by. Uh, oil prices, we could end up with a return to 1970-style uh, stagflation. So I, I like uh, on the on the lease side. I, I like to be in in um, uh, in uh, inflation-linked leases. Um, I like to be uh, on the credit side in either short-dated credit or or indeed in floating rate strategies, where uh, where you're positioned to uh, to be protected if inflation does does indeed uh, pick up again. One one of the areas I guess you, you sort of touched on there around sort of being protected as such, and and there seems to be like there's still going to be quite a lot of volatility as this this whole thing shakes out. Is you know maybe you know, do investors need to start thinking about the CDS space, um, you know, as as a way to sort of address their risk, or maybe you know try to to smooth out some of this volatility. What how do you how do you look at that? Yeah, I, th- I think that what we've seen with uh, credit default swaps is is that they uh, they reflect uh, uh, credit spreads uh, uh, widely, and they'll move in tandem with that. Uh, credit default swaps could have some interest, particularly in in uh, in Australia, uh, where you've um, you've seen the the uh, the risk of of early. Uh, um, Early redemptions of of, of pension pots uh, come come to the fore. It's been talked about elsewhere, but you've seen it in practice. And and if there is a second wave and another uh, another bout, and and if the central banks have have uh, uh, perhaps spent their their uh, their balance sheet on supporting uh, uh, credit, it might, it might be interesting to switch out of cash bonds. In advance of that, and and hold your credit exposure synthetically. Uh, that way, you would have a, a pot of cash, and still be able to uh, harvest uh, the uh, the generous risk premium on on investment grade credit. Uh, I just just as a highlight of that, uh, investment grade credit in Europe today uh, discounts a cumulative default rate over the next seven years of of um, uh, over the next five years. Excuse me, of, of just seven of seven percent. And the historic average uh, for the last 50 years has been just 90 basis points. And the worst uh, since 1970 has been uh, uh, 2.3%. Indeed, even the Great Depression, uh, uh, cumulative default rates were only uh, uh, about half of that number, around 4.3%. So you're getting paid a tremendous amount to take take investment-grade credit risk. Uh, We think that owning it in CDS format Allows you to hold liquid cash on one side, and also lets you lets you avoid exposure to long dated uh, interest rates, which I view as uh, as all risk and no return. Mm-hmm. 
All right. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Stuart. Alex, thank you very much for this uh, lovely chat. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.